They say history repeats itself. I do not believe this to be true. History does not repeat itself. But it does like to follow well-worn grooves. Like storm water running down a hillside. Sometimes events will follow the courses created by previous squalls, filling up the scars left by those floods that went before, emulating and copying the routes that were taken before finding new weaknesses and causing flash floods in new areas. Two centuries before this moment in time, in the 780s, small groups of raiders and pirates had begun attacking the villages and towns along the coast of England. In time, these men would be known as Vikings. Their raids metamorphosed the nation and the raiders themselves. As time passed, the Vikings grew bolder, more organized, stronger. Equally, at the same time, their victims had to cope with their growing strength or fall to anarchy and chaos into which these Vikings could then exploit and take over. The old maxim, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, was proven to be true. After a half dozen separate nations, polities called East Anglia, Northumbria, Mercia, Del Reda, after the Vikings had destroyed each and every one of them, they fell upon the last country standing, Wessex. And in many ways they had destroyed Wessex also, but its destruction was caused by it being reborn. It had become something new. England, born out of steel, forged fighting these Vikings. In time, England was able to consolidate the land ruled by the Vikings. In time, they became the antithesis of their enemies. England was able to receive body blow after body blow from huge armies, but they learned to shrug them off. They'd recoil in shock, regroup, and resurge, retaking lands lost and becoming something stronger. A half dozen or so kings saw the expansion of this nation. Alfred, Edward the Elder, Æthelstan, Edmund, Eadred, Edwig, Edgar, Edward the Martyr, and now his brother Æthelred. But the Vikings had changed also, and now they were back to the oldest ways, following the old courses they had begun two centuries earlier. They were raiding. The cycle was beginning again. Either England would learn from the lessons of those nations who went before from Mercia and from Northumbria, either they would adapt to this situation, or this flood water would take the old roots down off the mountains and create a new flood to overwhelm everything in its path. Those are the stakes we're playing for here in the year 980 of the Common Era. And what follows is an examination that, simply put, England did not learn from the stories that went before and was currently marching headlong towards its own destruction. One place did seem to learn and did seem to adapt and did change. One place refused to go quietly into that long night 
And yes, it wasn't alone, but that one place burned with righteous fury and indignation. That one place defied the inevitability of the fall of England until it became the heart of England. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is the 23rd chapter of the story of London. London Roars. Put brutally, the early part of the reign of King Aethelred was one of growing ineptitude, political shenanigans, and a nation being held together by the older generation of leaders who had come up with King Edgar. Men like Dunstan, the former Bishop of London and the current Archbishop of Canterbury, had been the shepherds of this nation. They had kept a lid on things. It was bad, but it could be worse. Without there being any kind of centralised fleet, for example, the Viking diaspora over in the west continued to raid England constantly, their ships then finding safe haven in the ports and harbours of Normandy. The government, however, didn't react, and to be fair to them, there is perhaps a reason why they didn't react to all this raiding. If you think about it, for over a century, when you said Vikings, what that meant with huge capital armies of freebooters and bandits stalking the riverways of England and claiming huge sections of land. We're talking things like the great heathen army. Vikings had meant men like Guthrum, who had taken over Wessex, Olaf Guthrisson, who had ruled all of England north of Watling Street, even Eric Bloodaxe, the weakest of these great leaders, and had taken all of Jorvik. That was a Viking. This, this was raiding. That wasn't a threat to England. It was an occupational hazard. England was fine. It hadn't even taxed fully the, the feared and burst system. No, no. To the powers that be, this was not a crisis. And so the raids continued. Focused as they were on internal matters, is it any wonder that when Aethelred began to come of age, he was also occupied on internal matters? Please note, I'm simplifying a very complicated tale of the interpersonal relationships of the Regency Council who helped the young king rule. As While that story is fascinating and interesting, it at last takes us away from London. And so London witnessed as eventually the young king turned 16. He became a man, a king unto himself. And his first major acts were, well, extraordinary. Aethelred shook up the political status quo. I mean, we can see why. I mean, he was young. He'd spent his young life being influenced by Aethelwald, the Bishop of Winchester, his mother, Dunstan, Archbishop of Canterbury. But when he turned 16, he began to make his own way. And mostly that meant he was going to break from the past. It's clear he wanted to shake things up. And it's also clear that England was suffering from a malaise. Things needed shaking up. 
So from the point of view of this young king, it made sense. And what he did was go after what he thought was undermining the nation. And that was the hereditary title of Eerdeman. Now the Eerdeman of England had been a cornerstone of English society for centuries. It is what had helped build up the nations of Wessex and Mercia, but the complexity of the relationships during the early childhood era of Æthelstan meant the young king wished to reform this, this post and the system around it. And so he did. And without getting into too much detail, basically he removed the hereditary right for Eildemann to inherit their position. He made it so all the Eildemann of England were appointed by him, the king, and their lands were his lands to give out. And any who opposed these reforms, like the Eildemann of Mercia, for example, they would find themselves accused of treason and exiled. This immediately caused three things to happen at once. Firstly, Ethelred was not really widely liked in much of the country. Plenty of former supporters of Eildemann families had reasons to resent this young king. And this could explain a way why, as he grew up and then grew to adulthood, Ethelred spent nearly all his time in the south of England. Of the 23 national council meetings, the Witans, that he held during his years in office, basically all bar one took place in the heartland of the nation, south of Oxford. Ethelstan, we think, knew he was disliked and so focused on the south. The second thing that happened was that since the high-ranking posts were now given out by him and all power was being centralised on the young king, his court became filled with ambitious and young nobles who sought to curry favour and gain possible reward. Now, while the status quo had shown itself to be flawed and somewhat inept, what Aethelred had replaced it with was with a system that was really prone to cronyism and nepotism, where new Eildemen would be appointed to regions who had no idea who these newcomers were, and where the new Eildemen became the face of the king. And if they were inept, they'd make the king look inept. But thirdly, and finally, and most importantly for us, all of this meant nothing to London. London was the king's territory anyway. He was their king and he was shaking things up, but he wasn't shaking up London. And in fact, under the trinity of his former regents and now under the young king, London was doing well. We know from the sudden appearance of pottery originating in Europe at this time that European trade was back on the menu London was growing in, in size, in population, and in wealth. London was bypassing the era where the only civic authority was its brutal peace guild. It was becoming successful, and hey, this had started in the reign of this young king. For London at the time, well, we cannot know how individuals thought about things personally. We can see that on the whole, they were fine with things. I mean, sure. The situation nationally was not good. There were raids taking place across the south and the west, and there was no actual national action seemingly organised. 
between London ships was still mostly focused on trade, not defence. But things were just hanging in there. And then, in 986, events started to slowly begin to spiral out of control. Because in 986, England was hit by a great moraine of cattle. Now, moraine is the old English word for either a crop blight, or in this case, a cattle-borne disease. We do not know exactly what it was. It could have been any one of a series of cattle infections. But 986 was crucially the first year it hit. The entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, And this year came first the great moraine of cattle, unquote, which means it's an ongoing epidemic hitting the cattle of England, which also means that this would mean the nation was facing a farming crisis and then that means that given the chronic instability of Britain's agricultural industry in the 10th century, Britain was facing an ongoing potential threat of famine. Ironically, London would have been, on paper anyway, somewhat protected from this. I mean, it's a place of trade. It's a market. And any people who wanted to sell their surviving cattle in the local region would have had to legally do so within London's jurisdiction. But we can only imagine just how bad it was elsewhere. And it is worth considering. Agriculture was the bedrock of the English economy at this time. Tax was measured in hides, literally the hides of animals. Any large-scale morbidity or mortality of animals was going to have a powerful impact upon the economic health of England. And this is why I think London was protected somewhat from all of this going on, because London's economy grew during this time, which would have made it an attractive place for folks who found it was doing better than maybe, say, their home village, suggesting perhaps migration to London was beginning in the 980s, which we can have figures to back it up because the population did significantly increase. But while all this was going on, Something else happened closer to home that probably caused London more than a little disquiet. The young king lost his temper at the Bishop of Rochester. Okay, now the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle offers scant details about this incident, but we know some decades later there was a monk living in St. Peter's Monastery on Thorny Island, what we now know as Westminster Abbey. And this monk wrote about the following incident in great detail. His account makes me think that what followed in 986 was witnessed by a lot of people in London, that while official records are scant, London saw what went down, and London remembered what went down. So what happened? Basically, one of the new and up-and-coming nobles who were hanging around Ethelred came to him and said he wanted a nice plum choice real estate package in Kent. A really lovely manor that just happened to be part of the territory of the Bishop of Rochester. Now, Ethelred, who had been confiscating lands from all over as he centralised powers, he, he just granted him this land. Now, maybe he didn't know it belonged to the Bishop of Rochester. Maybe he forgot it belonged to the Bishop of Rochester. Maybe he knew damn well it belonged to the Bishop of Rochester and he wanted to send a message out that he was in charge. Whatever the case, this courtier turned up to his new estate in Kent 
and simply moved in. A short time later, the Bishop of Rochester turned up to this estate and found this courtier of the king living in his home. The bishop's response was remarkably simple. He gathered up a bunch of local men who were loyal to him and marched on the house and violently ejected the noble using non-lethal, but it sounds like fairly violent force. The young noble in question ran back to the king, no doubt bloodied and humiliated. And the young king went ballistic. Ethelred decided to teach the Bishop of Rochester a lesson. He raised the feared. He actually raised the standing army of England. Now, he didn't bother raising the feared in northern Mercia and then marching them all the way to him and then marching with them down. No, 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 no. The young king was hot and angry. He would have no doubt ridden fast to Kent and sent word he wanted soldiers ready for him when he got there. Which would have meant the feared of the regions near to Rochester would have been the army that he raised. And for me, that suggests he probably raised the feared of London, the loyal and violent and rather judgmental London sin, London kind. Now, I cannot say with certainty that he did raise the feared of London. Keep in mind that I'm telling a story and this whole next part is not proven. But given that the only existing detail account of what followed was written down in London's monastery, that says to me the Londoners witnessed and partook in what followed. And what followed? Well, the feared marched on Rochester and the bishop very intelligently decided to flee. But the king's rage was not abated. And so he ordered his army to ravage Rochester. Understand, this is his town. These are his people. But in a display that matched the darkest moods of any of his ancestors and, and beat them, the young king ordered his men to unleash havoc. And for their part, I believe the Fjord simply shrugged and got on with it. We know Rochester suffered a massive level of destruction. Even the royal mint there had to stop producing for a while. They destroyed, looted, killed and burned Rochester. As brutally as any Viking. And then they marched home. I mean, one wonders how London would have seen these events at the time. Oh, sure, later they, like everyone, would have been fast to insult the young king. But really, there are only two possibilities open here. Either the residents of London partook in this violation of Rochester and felt guilty and, and they felt uncertainty and that probably gave way to mutters about the temperament of their young king. Or they just went, well... Bishop defied the king. What did they expect? We cannot say. In what follows, I get the hint that it's the latter, but again, I don't know for sure. Meanwhile, across the sea, civil war was raging in Denmark. War leaders needed money to gather armies, and there were no banks, so many of them were raiding England, as basically that was an easy way to raid funds. But as Rochester burned that year, in the same year, one of the many rivals for the Danish throne, Sven Forkbeard, the son of Harold Bluetooth, 
had clawed his way to the top. He was now, nominally, king of Denmark and Norway. But he was also looking for funds. The next five years seemed to slip by quickly. The Vikings of the Diaspora and the Vikings of Scandinavia raided, as is their wont. The, the nation was carrying on, trying to keep things together. But you get the sense that everyone was feeling that things were falling apart. Government seemed to be just letting the country rot. People started to believe it was a time of every man for himself. I mean, London continued to trade, and it continued to grow, and it continued to try to be a bastion of stability, while the nation... The nation seemed to begin to fragment. Cracks were appearing. In 988, Dunstan died. The Archbishop of Canterbury had been a giant, and as a former Bishop of London, and perhaps the man who had helped make London the centre of the fleet of Edgar... His passing would have been seen as an ominous sign by the Londoners. Dunstan, they knew. He was a known quality. This new nobility and the advisers of their king, people like the Erdemann of Hampshire, they seemed like hangers-on and focused only on holding parties and lining their own bloody pockets. Still, the new Archbishop of Canterbury was a man called Cyric, and Dunstan had approved of Cyric. Cyric was a strict church reformer, the cause London had liked after all. And then it began to seem that Ethelred was beginning to deal with the crisis. I mean, one of the biggest issues the country faced was the fact that these Vikings could sail into Normandy, and there the Duke of Normandy, Duke Richard, the leader of the Franco-Norse people, who at the time were being called Normans, they would give them shelter. It made raiding much easier for the Vikings and made things for England way more difficult. Now, it appears that King Æthelred pulled out all the stops, including using his new Archbishop of Canterbury to ask the Pope to apply pressure. In late 1990 and early 991, this diplomatic campaign paid off. Duke Richard of Normandy agreed he would forbade the Vikings from using his ports, the Pope himself backing the deal. The Vikings could not raid and expect safe passage to Normandy anymore. This, this was a victory. The young king had shown he could succeed diplomatically at least. Oh, that bodes well. Maybe there was hope. But then everything changed five months later. In 991, the full extent of the fragmentation of the English state became apparent to everyone. You see, a large Viking fleet appeared off the coast of England. It was led by an ambitious Viking, a man called Olaf Tryggvason. Now, if I'm going to be honest, I could dedicate an entire chapter to Olaf Tryggvason and never do him justice. His life was amazing, and even accepting that Viking sagas should be taken as historically accurate as a Hollywood movie that ominously starts with the words based on true events, his story still is pretty extraordinary. Olaf was born in Sweden and supposedly had a claim to the throne of Norway due to a distant tie to Harald Fairhair. He'd won personal one-on-one -on -one duels. He'd sided with Otto II in fighting against King Harald Bluetooth. 
Olaf had gone a Viking in Russia, he'd gone a Viking in Friesland, he'd gone a Viking in the Hebrides, and more. He, he'd arrived in Dublin and the Irish Sea diaspora, supposedly a couple of years earlier, and had been involved in local politics there, including winning the contest to marry the most attractive woman of the town, apparently. Bottom line, Olaf Tryggvason was a pivotal figure. He's one of the newest arrivals of the diaspora, and he had one foot in this wild hinterland of the Scandinavians, with another foot firmly in the Scandinavian status quo. And this is the man whose fleet suddenly appeared off the coast of England. They fell upon Folkestone and raided it. Then they fell upon Sandwich and raided it. And then finally, they fell upon the market town of Ipswich. They devastated it and then sailed south again, raiding and plundering as they went. Along the east coast, there was a growing sense of every man for himself. Now, what follows is what we've been able to reconstruct from the evidence at the time. It appears as if a local English lord, a man who may or may not have been Anglo-Norse, we don't know, but he was someone who saw this army and he didn't want to suffer from it. Indeed, he could have wanted to profit from it. And his name with Ethelrich. Now, Ethelrich sent word to this Viking fleet. If Olaf Tryggvason was to sail down to him and to his lands, they would find safe anchorage and possibly a chance to rest for a few days. It was a tempting offer. The raid had been successful so far, but Olaf Tryggvason and his large force could do with a place to rest and reconfigure their plans for the next stage. And so they sailed towards Ethelrich's territory. But they never got there. We know that Ethelrich's betrayal was discovered and we know that later on the English state were just giving away his lands, but that lay in the future. For now, we need to just focus upon the fleet of Olaf. His ships landed off the coast of Essex on a place in the River Blackwater called Northy Island. This was a good staging post as it was an island that was only accessible by land during low tide. But it's not got any other major defensive features, lending credibility to the idea that it was only supposed to be a temporary stop-off. And here maybe they would have waited for contact from Ethelrich, but Ethelrich never turned up. Somebody else did. His name was Brithnoth, and he was the Erdeman of Essex. He was a face of the old regime, of old England, the England that had met and dealt with everything the Vikings could throw at them. And what followed was a battle. Now, I'm not going to get into a description of the battle, as it's not important to London. But there's a few things that stand out. One, Brithnos could only raise the Fjord of Essex. The National Fjord was again not galvanised. So it meant from the word go, he was outnumbered. But he clearly brought enough men to stop the Vikings from safely breaking out and maybe attacking the nearby Burr of Malden. So if he'd done that, why was there a battle? Well, it appears that Brithnoth had no choice, really. This Viking force, after all, had arrived by ship. There was nothing, literally nothing, stopping them getting into their ships and sailing away, where they could just raid across the coasts of Essex and Kent, long before Brithnos could send a warning to anyone. They had strategic manoeuvrability, and it just feels like Brithnos was attempting to lure them into a battle 
as this was literally the only place he could engage them in a battle. True, not true, right, wrong, I'll let others decide that. All that matters then is that there was a battle, which is known to us as the Battle of Malden, and Brithnos was killed, and the Fjord of Essex was annihilated. The shockwaves of the Battle of Malden were felt everywhere. This wasn't just a local raid, this was national news. The destruction of so many of the Fjord threatened the safety of the entire southeast of England. Something had to be done. And it was the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Sirik, who suggested that the short-term goal would be to get the raiders just to go away. By time to reorganise defences, literally by time. Sirik suggested that the king should buy off Olaf Tryggvason. Now, I've got to say, there is an awful lot made about King Æthelred the Unready and his policy of paying what would become known as the Danegeld. Basically, huge payments made for the Vikings to stay away that, according to everybody, only invited more to come. But let's put this strategy into perspective. Paying off Vikings to buy time was a policy as old as England. Alfred the Great had done this, as we know. Heck, you remember that whole occupation of London by Halfton Whiteshirt? That was part of a payoff scheme, an act that meant Halfton and his boys stayed in London for a winter and left the place intact and unraided because they'd been paid to. Paying off raiders was a decent tactic. It wasn't a tactic designed to end the dangers posed by the Vikings. It was a simply a mechanism to buy you time. And Æthelred needed time because he had a plan. And so in the aftermath of the Battle of Molden, the English state finally organized and gave Olaf Tryggvason a massive sum of money, 10,000 crowns worth of silver, a veritable fortune. And we can be fairly sure that as one of the richer places in England, the residents of London would have made a healthy contribution towards it, and they could have been furious about this. But something had changed. Now, based on the story as I've told you so far, if you were a Londoner, you would probably feel the main solution to the problem would seem obvious. Ships. It had been ships that had given the reign peace during Edgar's rule. Ships, the former Bishop of London, Dunstan had helped institute with the ship soak. Ships which had been the bedrock of London's thinking for decades. What London would have wanted, what they were intimately involved in, was the need for ships to be the first line of defence for England. You don't have to fight these guys on the water. Ships allowed you to take them as they landed. And London suddenly appeared to finally be heard. Because in 992, King Æthelred ordered that a new fleet be organised, and London was right at the heart of it. Now, the old ship's oak had been allowed to wither, but not by Æthelred, it should be said. And it would not be ready to start up again and produce new ships for a few years. But across Britain, right now, ships were available. And so the king ordered them gathered in London. 
Finally, London was being listened to. The town, who had long understood the need for sea-based solution to the Viking issues, was heeded. This new ramshackle flotilla, then, was a collective fleet of the nation, and it was led by a group of leaders who represented the people who had ships available to utilise. We know there were three original commanders from the locations of the English fleets. The first was Ur Thored of Northumbria. He brought with him the ships of the North and East Anglia. The second was Bishop Escoy of Dorchester. He brought with him the ships of the South Coast. And the third, Bishop Elfstan of London. And he commanded the ships of London. This as much as anything else, tells me that London had a pre-existing fleet tradition here in 992. And meanwhile, to show that these fleets were fighting under a single unified flag, the King of England sent Ealdeman Elfric of Hampshire, his favourite, and basically the highest-ranking, most important noble of England after the King, and Ilfric was to be in charge of the, quote, land forces, unquote. Now, uh, now, we can't tell if that meant he was given overall command or if he was supposed to take charge when the troops on board landed. But we think he arrived with a bunch of other ships also because of what happens later on. Still, it's worth considering that under these four leaders, this combines fleet's purpose was to change the entire nature of the campaign as it stood. While Olaf Tryggvason had left with his huge loot in silver, there were still plenty of other raids going on. And so the fleet set off to do one task. Find a raiding fleet and destroy it. Now, in all that follows, we don't know exactly where the following events took place. The fleet had marshalled and had left London, so it was probably somewhere along the south coast, maybe as close to home as the intricate waterways around the Medway or up in East Anglia, but we just know that the operation was painfully and wonderfully simple. If the Vikings could use their ships to gain strategic mobility, striking where English defences were weak, this fleet could do the same and attack the Vikings as their ships lay at rest. At the very least, they could sink the raider ships and leave them stranded. What began now was a hunt, a game of cat and mouse. And by all reports, the English fleet was successful and they managed to locate a decent-sized raiding fleet to ambush. Now, supposedly, by the time they found whatever raiding force they were targeting, it was getting late in the day. And Eerdemann Elfric suggested or ordered that what they should do is that the crew should land their ships, rest up for the night, and cast off before first light so they could fall upon the Vikings the following dawn. This policy was agreed upon as prudent, and the London crews would have gone to sleep expecting battle the next morning. When they woke, however, they discovered that Elfric and his ships had gone, fled, left the rest of the fleet isolated. I mean, there were still a lot of them, but Elfric's disappearance would have shocked the remaining ships and, and bewildered them. And then things got worse. The fleet carried on with their operation, but then discovered the Vikings they were tracking had escaped. 
Someone had tipped them off so they got out before the English fleet could intercept them. And it didn't take much to pin the blame on that damn Elfric. The highest-ranking noble in England had betrayed them? You could imagine the fury of the Londoners. In fact, we don't have to imagine. The story goes that one of the Viking ships, for reasons unknown, had not cast off. It remained on the beach. The English crews, including the men of London, just butchered them without a moment's hesitation. The operation, however, did not end there. We know that the fleet carried on with their patrol. Their job was to act as a deterrent towards the Vikings, so they patrolled the coast. And we know that somewhere in that patrol, their now depleted forces were attacked at sea, maybe by the force they had been tracking. So we read that the ships of East Anglia and Northumbria and the ships of London were operating together still. I can't help but feel that the Londoners were continuing to insist to everyone this was the only way to defend the nation, that Bishop Elstan was remembering the policy Dunstan had initiated. But we also know that the Viking fleet decided to intercept them at sea. We know a bloody battle followed. The exact wording used in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is that it was a, quote, great slaughter, unquote. Now that suggests the English fleet was destroyed or mauled, but actually we don't know. It could just mean the two sides tore bloody chunks out of one another. We do know that in this sea battle, the Vikings did gain one major victory. Earl Thorod of Northumbria's ship was taken and overrun, and Thorod was presumably and probably killed as he doesn't appear in any historical records after this. Yet a great slaughter may have been a victory of sorts. The fleet may have just paid a blood price, since the aim was to prevent a Viking raid. Well, the records of the Great Slaughter are not followed up by any reports of raiding, so maybe this was a victory of sorts. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that the fleet of London was involved and in the thick of it. The ferocity of London, the bloody mob mentality we'd seen in the burning of Viking forts and the, the communal violence of the Peace Guild had seen them take, by all accounts, the van in these operations. Yet, as the fleet of London limped back to their home port, bloodied, carrying their dead and their injured, they were probably seething. Their operations had been messed up by a high-ranking noble, a man guilty of gross cowardice at best, treason at worst. English forces had been split, and whatever the operation could have done, it ended up being disorganised. You can sense the roar of London, a roar of frustration and anger. Still, the king had seen the prudence of London's crusade. More ships would be needed and they were being built, but that would take time. The fleets would need years to be organised and it would be only a matter of time before the damned Vikings came back. In anger, frustration and with a wry sense of foreknowledge, London dug a new defensive ditch around its walls. 
If the Vikings came back, it would only be a matter of time before they came for London. And the town intended to be ready for them. They dug their ditch. They reassessed their walls. They repaired their ships. If nobles like that coward Eelfric of Hampshire were going to run at the first sight of trouble, London wasn't. London roared and prepared for a bloody war to come. And as 992 came to an end, what they didn't know is that they wouldn't have to wait very long. And that's it for today's rather dramatic episode. As always, if you look in the description of this episode, you will find a link to a rough script that I'm reading from right now, and it's freely shared for everyone who wants to read along as well as listen along. And it's got pictures and maps and things I found along the way while researching it. I hope everyone is well. I'd like to thank you all for listening. That's all from me this week. I'll see you next week for the Battle of London. London.